So if you have your Bibles, I'd like to invite you to open them with me to Colossians uh, chapter 2. It took us like 18 years to get here, but uh, Colossians chapter 2, we're going we're gonna to go a little faster through Colossians 2 than we did Colossians 1. And today, as we continue our series, Mistaken Identity, I want to talk to us a little bit about grace and why grace is better, so, so, so much better than empty spirituality. I posted online this morning, uh, you know, I often go online and I share the service. I say, we'd love to have you worship, uh, worship with us at Harvest today. And today I said, today we're talking about why grace is better than empty spirituality. What is empty spirituality? And I said, you got to watch to find out with a little wink, you know. <laughs> I'm, I'm not above trying to hook people in. So what is, what exactly is empty spirituality? Let me give you a hint of what I'm talking about. And this will make much more sense as we read scripture. And as this unfolds, how many of you have been to a church somewhere, somehow in your spiritual experience where there was at least a person in the church who was more spiritual than everybody else? That's probably every hand, right? If you've had an experience where there were people who were absolutely convinced in their mind that they were better people, that they were better Christians, that they were better at the spiritual thing, that they were better disciples, that Jesus loved them more than you. We've met people. We've all known people like that. I'm going to call that empty spirituality for a very particular reason. We'll, we'll get into that as we go through that today. Likewise, before we get up on our high horse and judge the person who, who judges all of us, I would share with you that there is a subtle allure in all of us towards pride and insecurity. And that allure of pride and insecurity drives us to try to convince either other people or God or most likely ourselves that maybe we really are better than some people. Add to that that every sort of Christian tribe, every spiritual tribe has their thing that they think makes them spiritually superior to every other Christian tribe. It might be their style. It might be their dress. It might be their theology. But I promise you, every spiritual tribe you know has a little bit of arrogance built into it. Some audacity to be able to say, you know what, we're right. And all y'all, to use my, my words from the last weeks, all y'all are wrong, but we're right. And at the level of trying to really discern what Scripture says, I think it's important we work to try to get it right. But there are so many things that are fuzzy, that are alluded to, that are said, but then, I'm, I'm, I'm going to be clear about this. The Bible will say X over here, but over there it will say Y, and we're trying to make X and Y make sense together. And so there are things about which we can have absolute clarity, like Jesus is the Son of God, meaning Jesus is 100% human, 100% divine. I think there's no question biblically. We could go all day long on why that's true and how that's true biblically. But then you get into other things, the things that we tend to argue about more, like when exactly did God choose, or how exactly, or what is, what is, what is a man's role in the church, and what is a woman's role in the church, or any of these numbers number of things that tend to get us sidetracked. There is this allure of empty spirituality that comes over so many of us. And this kind of empty spirituality can leave us prideful, frustrated, often feeling like a failure. And if we're honest, just flat out alone. Because who wants to be the friend of the person who is better than everybody else? And so that person grasps at straws, continuing to have to be better than everybody else to make themselves feel good. And all that does is alienate everybody else. Hence, empty spirituality. So what does the Bible say? Let's go to Colossians chapter 2, 
Uh, I've been in verses 1, 2, 3 for a couple of weeks. So I'm going to pick up in verse 4, but he references back. This is just one long uh, sort of argument in the same direction. Verse 4, he says, I tell you this, uh, everything he's just told us, that, that, that there's richness in knowing the mystery of God, namely Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. I, I tell you this so that no one may deceive you by fine-sounding arguments. For though I am... Absent from you in the body, I am present with you in spirit. And I delight to see how disciplined you are and how firm your faith in Christ is. So then, just as you receive Christ Jesus as Lord, continue to live your lives in Him. Literally, it says, continue to walk in Him. Rooted and built up in Him. Strengthened in the faith as you were taught and overflowing with thankfulness. See to it that no one takes you captive. The word here literally basically is kidnapped or take you off as bounty. See to it that no one takes you captive through hollow and deceptive philosophy which depends on human traditions and the elemental spiritual forces of this world rather than Christ. So you guys might remember weeks and weeks ago, I told us that much of Colossians is about trying to distinguish between the real thing, the real gospel as identified surrounding Jesus Christ and all of the imitations. And we have a tendency to think imitations are the cults, right? People who don't believe that Jesus was either human or they don't believe that Jesus was divine. He was just a good guy. Uh, we think those kinds of things are the empty philosophies talked about here. And, and, and just to remind you a little bit, I just want to remind you that, you know, there's a real thing and then there's the fake stuff. And the fake stuff's not near as good. Anybody want to try it? I can shake it up, show it, shove it out your way, you know, it, any, any, yeah, I don't, yeah, I don't. There's empty stuff. I, I suppose you could argue that about soda in general, right? It's empty calories, not very good for you, all of that. But, but that's belaboring the point I made a few weeks ago. I believe that there are all the time forces in play that would have us determine and decide that there's something else besides Jesus that we need to be good Christians. Something else in addition to Jesus that would make us, now get how empty this is, Better than everybody else. I'm going to keep reading. Right? See to it, no one takes you captive through hollow and deceptive philosophy. I'll come back to it. Verse 9 says, For in Christ all the fullness of the deity lives in bodily form. And in Christ you have been brought to fullness. So he has all the fullness of God in him. And in Christ, we are brought to that same fullness, not to deity. You and I aren't made divine. We don't become gods. Again, there, there is a, there is a brand out there that tries to say, yes, that's true. But no, it's not. We don't become gods. But we are complete in Him. But we're always trying to add to that completeness. Now, am I saying that there's not such a thing as discipleship? And that, that am, am I saying that you shouldn't read your Bible because you don't need to because you got Jesus? No, I mean I tell us all the time: read your Bible, read your Bible, read your Bible. But does reading your Bible more like right? If I'm a, uh, f- I read through the whole Bible in a year. Even Leviticus. Right? Right? I mean, does that make me a better person? A better a better believer? A better Bible follower? Not if it leads to pride. Right? The point is to change my heart, to conform my life to the image of Christ. Because I am given everything He 
is and has in grace, again, not divinity, but his righteousness and his goodness and his love and his mercy and his compassion and his grace, all those things have been, have been given to me freely. I can't earn them. I can't deserve them. Why do I think I have to add to that? He, Christ, is head over every power and authority. And in him, now this is going to go deep, in him you were also circumcised. Remember, these were, uh, most cases, there were some Jewish believers there in the church, but there were a lot of Gentile believers, right? They'd never been circumcised. In him you were circumcised with a circumcision not performed by human hands. Your whole self, ruled by the flesh, was put off when you were circumcised by Christ having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through your faith and the working of God who raised him from the dead. And when you were dead in your sins and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made you alive with Christ. He forgave us all our sins, having canceled the charge of our legal indebtedness which stood against us and condemned us. And he has taken it away, nailing it to the cross. And having disarmed the powers and authorities, he made a public spectacle over them, triumphing over them by the cross. It's interesting, when you when you read this, it, 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 preachers are, are, are wildly famous for saying, but if you knew what this word really said, like, like they'll take a word and say there's a whole picture behind a word. Some people develop whole sermons out of one word in the Bible. And, and, and I will tell you, I mean, some Greek words have insanely beautiful word pictures behind them, and some just mean what they mean. The word the means yeah, I, mean, I can't give you a big word picture for A and the. and But I'm telling you, this text is like, like a 4th of July explosion of fireworks of word pictures. Because he's got so much here, right? There's fullness, there's, there's heart circumcision, there's your old life buried with Christ, your new life raised to Christ, you've been made alive in Christ, there's the forgiveness of wrongs, the wiping away of the wrongs, there's an IOU that's in this, uh, that's been nailed to a cross, that the powers that be have been stripped away, have been, have been shown to be really of nothing, And there is a triumphant victory that happens in the cross of Christ. And these false teachers had made their way into Colossae and they basically said, look, if you really want to be spiritual, if you really, you really want to be super spiritual, then you got to be like us. And to be like us, you've got to, and then they had a litany of stuff. And it might have been all kinds of things that they were into. It might have been an ancient philosophy that was in its beginning stages called Gnosticism. It might have been a form of Judaism that said, look, if you're a Christian, you still, you still got to be circumcised, bro. It might have been a sense of astrology. We'll see a little bit as we work through the text again. That it might have been that they were prescribing a real sense of of harsh self denial and a sense of even worship of angels that comes after the text we're looking at today and adhering to a lot of the laws of the Old Testament. There was just this sense that if you were going to be a really good believer, that they were going to impose on you a lot of their philosophy. And Paul writes and says. It's nothing. It's empty compared to grace. It's, it's hollow, deceptive philosophy. And Paul's writing to say, look, because Jesus is enough, and because His grace is enough, and because His forgiveness is enough, and because His power is enough, I can trust that Jesus is enough. There is nothing I can do to add to this beauty of salvation. I'm trying to find it in my notes. I wrote somewhere. I know it's in here. Come on, where is it? I just wrote it in a different spot. I wrote in my notes that it's like me thinking that I can add to what Jesus has done. It's like me going out into the forest and the beauty that all the forest is 
and taken my can of spray paint because I'm going to make it more beautiful. It's like me finding Rembrandts in a museum and busting out my Crayolas, thinking that I'm going to improve upon a masterpiece. Am I saying that there's not a cost of discipleship? No. Am I saying that there's not self-denial involved in take up your cross and follow me? No. I'm saying that we usually look at the outer trappings as the things that indicate when we're really better than someone. And this is putting the full emphasis on heart transformation that comes from being connected to Christ. He's saying Jesus is enough. So let me just lay it out for you. The one thing today, hollow deceptive spirituality points me away from Jesus toward me. Hollow deceptive spirituality points me away from Jesus. Jesus is not enough. Look at me. Ooh, 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 ooh. Look at me, look at me, look at me. And you can easily see when it's not you that there's a lot of insecurity involved in that. When I'm going, look at me, look at me, look at how much better I am. Why do I feel the need to feel better than you? Pride. Pride. Hollow deceptive spirituality points me away from Jesus toward me and grace points me away from me to Jesus and his way of life. So I want you to think about this. How often do, in in church world, do we say, look, there are sins that are bad and there are sins that are bad, but they're okay. Because those of us that struggle with the sins that are bad, but okay, we're still good people. But there are bad, bad sins. Well, they just make you bad. You're just bad people. There's, there's good people and there's bad people. And does this sound familiar? Yep. Like, have you heard this out of church world before? Yep. Right? Right? And if, if we ever stand here and think we get to be here because we're good bad people, not bad bad people, we've missed the point. That's hollow deceptive spirituality. And it's pointing me away from Jesus toward me. If I ever reach the point in my spirituality where I'm thinking like, look, you know, that sin is bad stuff, but you know, I, I mean, come on, I haven't sinned in like 8, 10, 12, 15 years. Well, that sounds just a wee bit prideful, doesn't it? All I know is the longer I walk with Jesus, the more I understand how bad the badness in me really is. Hollow deceptive spirituality points me away from Jesus toward me. And it's not just something that happens in false teaching like we think of cults. It happens in churches all the time. Grace, on the other hand, points me away from my sinfulness and my way of life to a deeper life in Jesus and His way of life. And His way of life is a way of grace. You say, what is grace, right? I mean, there's that old that old G-R-A-C-E, God's riches at Christ's expense, G-R-A-C-E, right? Essentially, the idea of grace is that I am given everything Jesus is. Again, I don't mean divinity, but I am given his fullness and his way of life, even though I deserve absolutely none of it. I have earned none of it. Jesus is enough. And because I have Jesus, I have all I need. Which in a lot of ways, at least intellectually, takes care of my pride problem. The problem is, we we set aside our pride to repent of our sin and come to Jesus. And then we pick our pride back up and start to walk with it in spirituality, convinced that we've got to be something more to be good enough. And the whole point of the Bible is there is no good enough in my works. There is no good enough in my ability to keep from sin. There is no, if it's on me and my good enough, I'm toast. 
And so he calls this, this, this being kidnapped in verse eight, see to it that no one takes you captive through hollow and deceptive philosophy, which depends on human tradition and the elemental spiritual forces of this world rather than Christ. He uses, he's, he uses interesting words here. Traditions would be like the traditions of men, like human way of thinking. The elemental spiritual forces of this world would be the basic building blocks. It, it literally, like you could translate it that. In, in certain contexts, this might mean something like, you know, the basics. You go back to the basics, like the ABCs. Or in terms of the physical world and the Greek world, the Roman world, and the way they thought about the forces of nature in that day, they would have begun to think in terms of astrology. Right, That the forces, the powers that be, sort of the elemental things that cooked this world up. And there is always in humanity something going, Jesus is just a made up dude. There is nothing real about this Jesus thing. Right, Karl Marx, Jesus is the opiate of the masses. It's just, it's, it's just this fake stuff. All there really is, is what we see. Now let us define for you what we see, and then we get to define it. So I'm just going to tell you, at a lot of levels, you could say, what is empty, deceptive philosophy? And there's a lot of them out there. I mean, flat out. And probably the most common thing in American life that's taught academically would be secular humanism. Secular humanism implies that there is nothing uh, theological, there is nothing divine, there, it's secular And it's humanism. It's human-oriented. And secular humanism is going to do everything it can to convince us that we are capable of being good enough on our own with no definition of what good really is. Then immediately telling us, actually, it's all good while canceling us for doing things that aren't good, but there's there's no such thing as wrong. You see how this traps and gets empty really quick. Right? We're better than you, our tribe, because we're good. But we don't want to, we don't want to say there's anything as good, because good would imply there's something that's bad, and there's nothing that's bad except the stuff that we think is bad, and then it's bad enough that we should like rid the world of you and be separated from you. And by the way, both, both sides of the political spectrum have been playing this game for like ever. And tribalism in churches has churches playing this tribal game forever. Where there's this sense that our way's right, your way's wrong, except there is no wrong. Or you've got others on the other side going, there's a whole lot of really, really, really wrong stuff. It's just, that's not us. We're not really, really, really wrong. It's just them that's really, really, really wrong. And he's going, Jesus, grace, Jesus, please. Right? I, I think about a lot of philosophies that are sort of empty. There's this like, you know, like this common, I'm spiritual, but I'm not into Jesus. There's, there's a lot of ancient philosophies, things like Gnosticism and various other things that this would expose. There's, there's modern philosophies, right? Pragmatism, existentialism, absurdism, nihilism. Right? All the isms that you sort of get in a philosophy class in philosophy 101. That there are all kinds of things, just the us versus them thinking that exists in the American sort of mindset where there's, there's, there's those of us that are good and then there's those of them that are bad and the, 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 there's my camp and we're all great and that camp and they're, they're all to be hated. Empty, deceptive philosophy. Empty, deceptive spirituality. So what I want to do is I want to show us how grace is better. And I want to go back through the text one more time. And I want to give us five practices that all revolve around grace. Five practices to help me avoid being kidnapped by empty spirituality. And kidnapped is one of those beautiful word pictures that's here in this text. Again, verse 8. See to it that no one takes you captive. Captive. Through hollow, deceptive philosophy. So how do I mentally, emotionally, spiritually, even physically avoid being kidnapped by empty spirituality? Particularly in the church. I'm going to tell you five elements of this. Five practices. They all revolve around grace. Number one is just to walk in grace. I told you when I read it. It said in verse 4, 5, 6. 
Just as you receive Christ Jesus as Lord, continue to live your lives in Him. Continue to walk in Him, it says. And then it gives us some pictures of what walking in Christ looks like. Just as you receive Christ Jesus as your Lord, so it's presuming that you and I have made a decision that I need Jesus to be the Lord of my life, which is its own word picture, because they all knew that in Roman society, you were commanded to make Caesar your Lord. And for some Christians in that day and time and not long after this, if you would not confess Caesar as Lord, the, 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 the penalty for that is the death penalty. And Christians would stand for their faith and say, I can't do that. Jesus is Lord. And he presumes and says, look, you've, you've said Jesus is your Lord, so continue to live as though Jesus is your Lord rather than you trying to be your own Lord. Continue to walk in him is what it says right here when it says live your lives. It says continue to walk in him And then it tells us, rooted and built up in Him. Now, word pictures. Rooted. What do we think of when you think of roots? Deep roots. I'm thinking like this. We're thinking the tree world, right? These big trees. But why are they healthy? Because under the ground, there's almost a mirror image where the roots run just as deep as the branches run up, right? And this actually says being rooted in Him. And the point of it is that it is God's work to root you in Jesus Christ. And built up in Him. Built up uses a language that word picture would be like a foundation. I mean, some of you build things. I, I, I never build things because when I build things, they like my Legos, they just... But some of you actually build stuff, right? Right. So, so how well does it work when you build a shed or you build a what are they called these days? Like a she shed or a you go going to go build something like that, and so you just you just you know you just get your rake out and you just rake over the ground a little bit, make sure that dirt's good, start building on it. Pretty soon, corner of the she shed's doing this, right? Because you don't have what. A foundation. That's the word picture he's using here. And he's telling us that to be built up in him is to have a foundation built on Jesus Christ. Strengthened in the faith as you were taught. Sort of a picture of a school here. And he's saying that as we're taught the real gospel, as we're taught grace, that we are strengthened in the faith. That we have strength literally put into us. So just to be clear, in salvation and in discipleship, it is God's job to root me and build me up and strengthen me. This is teaching that. And my job is to overflow with thankfulness. Literally baked into the language is this picture of of a river overflowing its banks or a spring overflowing what holds the water. So that what is abounding and flowing over, it says, is gratitude. So there's four word pictures right out of the gate. Just walk in Him. And my response, the sign of a grateful Grace-filled Christian almost always is a deepening gratitude. The sign of deceptive empty philosophy, on the other hand, is almost very little gratitude for what Christ has done and a whole lot of self-congratulatory look at me and what I've done. And so this is saying that I need to walk in grace, that every day of my life I need to walk in Him. Dallas Willard once said, a friend of mine posted this on social media this morning, that you will not drift or accidentally stumble into a life of constant companionship with Jesus. You're not just going to wake up one day and find that, oh, look, there's, look, I'm just like mature in Jesus, and it happened totally by accident. That that maturity comes out of not pointing to me and saying, look how great I am. But that overflowing gratitude that comes out of the grace of Jesus Christ. That comes from saying, how can I have His grace be my grace? How can my heart be more like His? I'm walking in that relationship with Jesus every single day. I mean, a little bit of me wants to tell you, like, this is part of why I need Sundays. 
Because I need to be strengthened in the faith as I was taught. I, I need those roots fed and grown. I need that foundation strengthened. But this is not a Sunday to Sunday kind of description. This is a moment by moment kind of decision. Does this make sense? This is a daily walk with Jesus Christ. Marcy and I go for a walk sometimes. Would you just happen to know that when we go for a walk, we walk together? Right? I I don't just drift off like, oh, hey there on the other side of the street. Right? And wouldn't you know while we go walking, we talk? Right? That there is conversation going on. How was your day? And what about this? And what's going on with that? And what, 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 what's happening at work? And what are the yahoos doing? And you know, it's really fun when she asked me what the yahoos at church are doing. And I'm joking. But there's this, when we walk, we're in relationship. And it's a relationship based on grace. Walk in His grace. Walk in grace. Number two, preach grace to myself. Preach grace to myself. So, so I, I just want you for ten seconds to pretend with me. Like, what do I do for a living? I'm a, I'm a preacher. I'm a pastor, right? Right? Yeah. I'm gonna prove this to you. You're a preacher too. You are. Well, that sounds kind of slimy, which says something about what we think of preachers. But you're a preacher too. Because there is a message that is always flowing in and out of your head in conversation with yourself and you are preaching something to yourself all the time. I promise you, you are. And don't look at me like you don't talk to yourselves. I know you do. Right? That there is, as you go through your day, something that's always running in your head and while you're working and while you're working out, while you're doing life, whatever it is you're doing in life, there's an internal conversation always going on inside of you. Self-talk, if you will. And you are often saying to yourself something that isn't grace. Sometimes it's guilt. I just feel guilty. We say, I just don't want to feel guilty, but then I feel worse guilty. Sometimes it's, I got to be better. I got to be stronger. I got to bootstrap it. Sometimes it's, it's not just talking to yourself, it's beating yourself. Sometimes what goes on inside of us is so gnarly and nasty that when it slips out our mouth, we go, oh gosh, did I really say that? And frankly, sometimes what's going on in our heads is abuse. And I can almost always guarantee you, before an abuser begins to abuse other people, there is more often than not an abusive conversation going on in the head directed here. And when that's not enough, it begins to spill out onto others. And there can be trauma involved in that. There can be all kinds of things involved in that. And so I'm not trying to oversimplify that. And if you've ever experienced abuse at some level from another person, I, I, I'm deeply, deeply sorry for that experience. I'm not making light of that. But I do want us to know that most of us in our self-conversation, not, not to mention our conversation with other people, just the conversation that happens in our own heads all of the time, what we're preaching to ourselves is not grace. And yet he says, see to it that no one takes you captive, kidnaps you through hollow, hollow deceptive philosophy. You know who kidnaps me most of the time? Yeah. It's me. Which depends on human tradition, elemental spiritual forces of this world, rather than on Christ. For in Christ, all the fullness of the deity lives in bodily form. And in Christ, you have been brought to fullness or completeness. And He is the head over every power and authority. Like, it's Christ I need to solve this internal game going on inside of me. When I have all of this guilt, or all of this shame, or all of this sense that I'm not 
good enough. Well, at some level, guess what? None of us are good enough. This isn't about good enough. This is about grace. I get a relationship with Jesus based on grace. And in Christ, I have been brought to completeness. And so I don't need empty human tradition. I don't need the elemental spiritual forces of this world. I need Christ. And He is enough. And a lot of us have come to Jesus already, made Him our Lord, but we're not living like He's enough. So then we start out to say, okay, I'll show you how to be enough. And then we work at being enough. And then pretty soon we're kidnapping other people into our hollow, deceptive spirituality. Because, you know, those of us that are like me are really better than everybody else. Number three, be transformed in grace. I need to walk in grace. I need to preach grace to myself, to other people too, goes without saying. Number three, be transformed in grace. He begins to talk about what's going on deep in our souls. He says, verse 11, In Him you were also circumcised with a circumcision not performed by human hands. Now, I hope you guys know what circumcision is. If you don't, ask your parents, please. Um, But he is saying that there were forces in Colossae that were saying, if you're not Jewish, you still need to be circumcised. And he's saying, you already were in Christ, but not a little tiny cutting off of the flesh, but a significant putting off of the flesh. Verse 11, you were also circumcised with a circumcision, not performed by human hands. Your whole self, ruled by the flesh, was put off when you were circumcised by Christ. Not a priest doing this work, but Jesus Himself. This is heart transformation. Having been buried with Him in baptism, we always talk about the picture of baptism, right? Buried, brought back to life. Having been buried with Him in baptism, in which you were also raised with Him through your faith in the working of God who raised Him from the dead. And when you were dead in your sins... And in the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made you alive with Christ. That's enough. Why in the world would I think that I've got to add to that? Thank you for Brian for finally finding the spot in my notes where I said, this is like me with the Crayolas and a Rembrandt. This is like me trying to tag nature with some black spray paint or some green spray paint going, this green on this tree is not green enough. I'm going to make it prettier. Look at this. What makes me think that God needs me to improve upon what He has done? It is the ultimate of human arrogance to say, well, you know, what God did was pretty good, but I can do better. Like I said, I made plenty of stuff out of Legos before. But I've never made a universe. Two more. Be transformed in grace. This is about a heart. There's some deep stuff here about about baptism and about circumcision and about what's necessary and not necessary. And when he's he's using baptism as a picture, but he's talking about a baptism of the heart, where my heart is changed and my heart is transformed. And if my heart is really transformed, if I am walking in a relationship with Jesus every day, and I am preaching grace to myself, and there's this ongoing sense that that you're right god guilt is not what should drive my life shame is not what should drive my life grace is what should drive my life and so this is being reinforced in my life and my heart is being transformed so that grace is making me alive in christ not just positionally like one time i was made alive and boom it's done but in the sense of more and more grace and more and more love and more and more of the life of god is bringing brought to fruition inside of me, the the selfish side of me being put off, and the part of Jesus that is amazing and alive and full is enough, is being replaced inside my soul, then number four, I should just rest in grace. Rest in grace. 
You know how often we can't rest? I don't mean sleep. I mean rest. Because we got to get back on. We got we to keep going. We've got to go, go, go. Because we've got to be enough. We've got to be better. When you were dead in your sins, verse 13, and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made you alive with Christ. He forgave us all our sins. Picture of forgiveness. We've talked about that many times. A debt that has been canceled. Having Now get this, verse 14, having canceled the charge of our legal indebtedness. You know the word picture there? This is beautiful. It's actually super simple. And I think we make it sound kind of boring with the way it's translated. The charge of our legal indebtedness. The word having canceled means to be wiped away, to wipe clean. So they would keep debts in that day. They didn't have paper. They didn't have computers. They, you know, they, they, when they wrote things down, they had like papyrus. And, and actually it could be washed and wiped clean. I mean, I think like an Etch-a-Sketch, you know? Remember Etch-a-Sketching when you were a kid and you were... Some of you have no idea what I'm talking about, right? I mean, you'd just be a fool with that Etch-a-Sketch, right? Right, left. You did really good coordinated people were able to do it with two hands. I'm over here with one hand like, hey, this hand doesn't do me no good. So, look, it's a square. It's not a very good one. And so what happens when I get a square that's not a very good one? You take that Etch-a-Sketch and wipe clean, start over, do over. Erased, it says, having having the charge of legal indebtedness erased. The picture for the charge of legal indebtedness is an IOU. It literally says the autograph, having the autograph erased. In their day, they you you owed me money. You would you would fill out something somewhat. I mean, again, they didn't have paper the way we did today. But your your autograph would go on it saying, I owe you. And he says that that I owe you, the charge of our legal indebtedness, which stood against us, which could be held up and condemn us and say, you owe me. And this would be God saying, you owe me. Specifically, Jesus saying, you owe me. That that has been taken away and nailed to that cross. And I'm sitting over here going, that's really cool, but let me show you what else I can do, God. That's empty, deceptive spirituality. When I think I got to take the IOU, God erased it, God canceled it, God nailed it to the cross in Christ, and I'm going, yeah, but let me let me give you some other stuff that I can do. Look at how good I am. Empty, deceptive spirituality. Instead of the sense that I have to produce more and more and more, that I have to that I have to be gooder. There is real spiritual rest. Like deep breath, soul cleansing rest. When you wake up and you go, Jesus really is enough. The cross really is enough. The whole thing always was grace. Always was grace rest number five find victory in grace right i need to walk in grace i need to preach grace to myself i need my heart transformed in grace right i need to rest in grace and these are things i do to say may look and make me better than everybody else but this is just living the life of grace that that i can find victory in grace and victory in the power of christ's cross and when i come along somebody else who's struggling as well and they really think they're better than everybody else you know i can just come alongside them and, and kind of give them that appropriate hug and say isn't that grace of jesus so so good look at that victory now think about what he's saying He's saying that the instrument of torture, where the world said that Jesus was defeated, is a sign of triumph. Why do we wear an emblem of torture and death on our necks? Like, 
Who in the Roman world would have thought that a necklace with a cross on it would make any sense at all? The cross was torturous, murderous, and represented the death penalty. And Christians look at it and say, that's victory. And I know the Easter story. Right? Why is it big? Because he's alive. But this is saying that it was victorious at the cross before the resurrection. Having disarmed, verse 15, last verse, having disarmed the powers and authorities. And so for them, these are those elemental spiritual forces. The things that they go, like today we'd go, well, fate. Fate. What is fate? You know, the, the like thing you can't control that's sort of up there, out there. By the way, we let a lot of things take that kind of power over our lives, right? It's easy, easy, easy to see where things like drug and alcohol can become that, right? This is where Christians get up on our high horse and we go, see, no drug, drug, alcohol, that's bad stuff. You know how many Christians are willing to admit that sugar can take over my life and be a power over my life and an elemental spiritual force of this world? Right? There are all kinds of things. Oh, great, Brian. Now you're telling me I can't have ice cream at night. I'm telling you to rest in grace, that there's victory in grace, and that if there's something that needs victory in your life, it's not going to come from you triumphing over it. It's going to come from Jesus who's triumphant. This literally says he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. This is the picture. When a Roman general would win in battle, he would take those that were defeated, and the general would ride into town, into the city, and behind them were those that had been triumphed over, typically in shackles. And the Roman general, it would be a parade, a public spectacle, a parade. And this is saying that Jesus is the triumphant one, but the triumph is in the cross. What was seen as the good riddance, get rid of Jesus' defeat, is the very thing that brings triumph to our lives. I spent some time while working on this message trying to figure out, and I, I just knew we were going to run out of time. But I spent some real time thinking about, like, I'm going to give out little slips of paper and little hammers, and we're going to nail some stuff to the cross. And I promise you, you need to do that. Take this piece of paper and find something and stick it to that cross. Nobody here is going to go reading it, right? Right, because victory... It's in grace. It's in grace. And so at the end of the day, Jesus is enough. And because Jesus is enough, because His grace is enough, because His forgiveness is enough, because His power over the forces of this world is enough, because His victory is enough, I can just rest in my walk with Jesus. And that's enough can i pray that for our lives actually i'm not going to pray it we're going to pray it together i always end with two prayers the first is a prayer of salvation the second a prayer of application and if you need jesus today and maybe for the first time today you've come to the realization that religion is not about what you do but rather about what jesus has done you want to receive Jesus and His grace, His forgiveness, His mercy, His compassion. Maybe you'd pray with me just like this. Dear Jesus, I don't deserve any of this. But I turn to You. I confess my brokenness, my wrongs, my sins, my selfishness, my pride. I believe, Jesus, that you died for those things. 
that they were nailed to you and your cross. Therefore sent away. Jesus, I ask you to come live in me and walk with me. I believe you're alive. Take over my life. Walk with me every day. Thank you that your grace is enough. In your name, Jesus, I pray. Amen. If that's you here in the room or even online, man, that's the coolest thing, the most amazing, amazing thing when we we say, yeah, Jesus, you're enough. And if that's you, I'd love to celebrate it, but I can't celebrate with you if I don't know about it. So let me know. You can let me know on the communication card or the digital communication card. You can find me in the room. You can email me online. I'm Brian, B-R-I-A-N, at harvestchurcheugene.com. But let me know, man. I'd love to celebrate. A lot of us made that decision already, and yet we wrestle between his, but is Jesus really enough? Come on, Brian. If you need grace to be enough, would you pray this prayer of application with me? Dear Jesus, I need you as much today as the day I was first saved. So live your way of life in me and live your way of grace through me. Help me to walk in grace. Help me to share grace, preach grace with myself and others. Help me to be transformed in grace. Rest in grace. And find victory in the goodness of your grace. Do that in my life, Jesus, and in all of my friends here at Harvest. In fact, spill over your grace with gratitude in us. In Jesus' name.